Hey, it's David, and you're listening to the Tombe's Classical Guitar Podcast. I've got David Leisner on the show today. Had a really nice time meeting him in New York City last month, and we talked about his newly released book, Playing with Ease. This is a fantastic resource for all musicians. I highly uh, recommend grabbing a copy when you have a chance. One thing I wanted to note, even though, yes, David has suffered from focal dystonia and made a beautiful recovery, this book is really not meant to be focused on that at all. And in fact, only one chapter reflects on his own experiences. This book is really meant for all musicians and instrumentalists, regardless if they're guitarists or not. We also talked about his teaching at Manhattan School of Music, his compositions, and his current tour that he's embarking right now with Eduardo Fernandez. So let's go ahead and take a listen to one of his recordings before the interview. This is a beautiful recording of Villalobos' 10th etude. here with a composer, a performer, and now an author of a wonderful book, Playing With Ease. When did, uh, when did you start writing this book? Hmm, I think it was maybe a couple of years ago. Um, it was a book that was in my mind for a long time. It was a book that I really wanted to write, and I, for many reasons, was just not able to find 
the time, to carve out the time, to set aside, to, to write this thing. And um, I, I, a couple of years ago, I started to think, okay, I think I'm ready to do this now. And I sent out my first email uh, to Oxford University Press at the suggestion of a friend of a friend. And um, lo and behold, I got this miraculous response that said, yes, we're interested. This fits right into what we're, oh, that's we're, great. we're looking for. We have, a, we have a whole wellness series and we don't have anything on the guitar. And this is perfect. So um, I, was, I couldn't believe it because Oxford was my first choice. Yeah. And bingo. <laughs> First time, so oh, that's uh, fantastic. So, so I got to, I got I sat down to write it. Um, I think a couple of summers ago It was in the summer, and it did not take me long. It was maybe about six weeks for the uh, for the first draft. Oh, really? Um, but you know, which I think anybody who knows about writing um, would know that's very very fast amount of time, especially for a book like this. But really, this book is very much a summary of 40 years of teaching for me. Yeah. So uh, my my book, in a sense, has been honed down verbally over decades. And all I had to do was just spill it onto paper, basically. Yeah. And um, I, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I'm planning on doing that this <laughs> summer, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but from what I gather, people say, it, first of all, it's an amazing resource for guitarist Ben was speaking very highly of it earlier today oh, when I interviewed him. But I, I've heard it's also, it works, it's very applicable for any musicians, regardless yes. of instrument. That's correct. There are two chapters out of seven, plus an introduction chapter, so really eight chapters. Two out of the eight are guitar-specific, one, one about the right-hand technique, one about left-hand. Um, but uh, the rest is very much applicable to any instrumentalist. Yeah. And um, Oxford wanted me to focus specifically on the guitar, but they allowed me some leeway to to relate it also to other instruments. Yeah. There, there are a number of times when I mention in the book, well, this also applies to pianists or mm-hmm. string, bow string players or whatever. And do you go um, do you go into depth about your own recovery from an injury, or is no. it more of a prevention type of book? Um, it's, I would say it's more about prevention. Um, it has only one chapter in the book, one of the eight chapters, has to do with my injury from mm-hmm. dystonia. Uh, the rest is stuff I had been teaching about, again, since the beginning of my teaching. Yeah. So the, the book is really mostly about understanding the anatomy and how best to partner with it intelligently so as to play your instrument with um, with with good technique that will endure for the lifetime of the player, um, which is not the most common approach of most teachers, yeah. never mind guitar teachers, but instrumental teachers. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it starts with the body first and goes from there. Yeah. Well, it, it's such a prevalent problem now especially in classical music with uh, injuries. I, I think part of it is levels so high right now, and there's so much competition. People well, become only obsessed with becoming as good as they can and not yes. taking care of themselves. Yes. I mean, you, as, as you know very well, guitarists is certainly uh, are highly competitive, literally and figuratively, but there are so many competitions out there, and there are a number of guitarists now who... Who young guitarists who kind of make a living from going from one competition to another. Yeah, um, it's a very very high level of competition, and unfortunately, not only does some musical depth get lost in the process, but um, I think even more significantly, there's a lot of injury that yeah. happens because they're only focused on the competition and they're not thinking more deeply and more long-term. They don't think about their bodies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's so, scary. Yeah, and so I think, you know, the, the book uh, ultimately is very much about prevention in the sense that when you you do partner intelligently with your body, you will prevent injury. 
And it's just, just really that simple. Yeah. And if you don't mind me talking about it, but you, sure. you suffered from a focal dystonia. And yes. You're one of the few musicians that I know pretty much made a full recovery from it, which is just yes. amazing. Um, and you're playing fantastically now. How Thank long you. of a uh, process was it to basically re-teach re, uh, your, your finger? Well, it was 12 years from the beginning of the onset of the focal dystonia to the end, to, mm-hmm. to the 100% cure. Um, in the beginning, I went to other people to try to fix it. Um, of people of different persuasions, you know, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, doctors, non-doctors, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, so many different kinds of practitioners. And I did this for about five years and nobody helped me. Everybody thought they would help me, but no one did. And in the end, the last person that treated me actually made it a little worse. Oh no. So I thought, well, I'm just spinning my wheels here. I'm wasting my time. And besides, I now know from some people in the music medicine community that focal dystonia to them is considered incurable. Mm -hmm. So why am I going to other people to try to fix something that they all seem to think is incurable? So I stopped doing that. I did nothing for a while. Uh, Then I, for a little while, I was playing with two fingers, my thumb and my index finger, uh, and it I, was your middle and ring finger on it, your right hand? It was or? not my middle. Well, my ring finger was the primary finger. Mm-hmm. Usually there's a primary and a secondary finger involved, sometimes a third finger as well. Mm. So for me, it was the ring finger and the pinky was secondary. Okay. And the middle would kind of pull in yeah. with it as well. So you were playing just P&I for your repertoire yes, on the right, right. hand. I was, um, I was doing P&I when I was in this period of kind of not knowing what to do, where yeah. to turn to, or what to think. And then eventually I started to investigate on my own. And the thing that got me on the right track was something that a colleague of mine at the New England Conservatory, which is where I was commuting to teach uh, at the time, uh, my colleague Neil Anderson um, who no longer teaches guitar, but he, he was a fine teacher and was telling a student in a master class that I was sitting in on to use his larger muscles by swinging his arm broadly to reach the string hmm. and just make these large arcs of motion. And um, the moment he said this, a, 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 a lightning Lightning hit me, and you know, and I just I thought this definitely has something to do with with me and yeah. and my focal dystonia. So I came home to New York and I started uh, playing around with this idea of swinging at the string. And I swear, within five minutes of doing this, I was starting to use the ring finger that I hadn't used in at that wow. time eight years. It was an unbelievable moment. Um, I was just, you know, awestruck. I couldn't believe it. I had yeah. tears coming down. I, just, I mean, I didn't, had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I knew that I was onto something. Yeah. And um, it obviously was not uh, an immediate cure by any means, but, but it was the first light in this very dark, very dark tunnel. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine that if your whole identity or much of your identity is bound up with playing your instrument, then to have it taken away for so many years was devastating. So here was this moment when I suddenly had hope for the first time. And so from that moment to the time at which I was 100% cured was four years. It took me four years. And so basically... What Neil Anderson had done was just begun to think about large muscles and hadn't gone gone any further with it. He retired from teaching shortly afterwards, went into another field, um, make, making real money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and me, I, uh, I I stuck it out and uh, started to develop these ideas more on my own. Followed my instinct, which 
had otherwise always been a very good source. I've been very, my intuition is very good about physical issues Mm -hmm. in general. Um, And here, ultimately, in fact, it turned me, it it, it turned me in the right direction. It served me well. And during this four-year period, when, when you finally got on a better track, were you still playing uh, in concerts with just P&I, or did you yes. dedicate the four years just to recovery? No, I, I continued to play with P&I, um, and it was a weird th- combination because it because obviously I was practicing a lot with these new ideas, but it wasn't ready to take on the road yet. Yeah, yeah. So I just continued. I, I I did that work in the practice room, and when I played in public, I played with P and I, fooling a lot of people, by the way, because when I played those concerts, most people didn't even know that anything was wrong. Wow! And I was playing really difficult repertoire, you know, like Paganini Grand Sonata and Richard Ronnie Bennett Sonata. So besides tremolo, you didn't really hold back. Well, with re- what, what or did I you get did, away with tremolo? No, I did not. Well, actually, I could get away with a slowish tremolo. Okay. Although tremolo has never been my interest. The music with tremolo is not for it's the most part. It's a bit hit or miss, yeah. Well, it's not music that I love to play for the most part. But, um, but arpeggios, which did cause me a tremendous amount of problem, many times I would just reorder the arpeggios. Oh, okay. You know, instead of P-I-M-A, I might do P-M-I-A or something like that and, and different on the reverse. Or, you know, I would just find ways around it. Yeah. And, and again, people didn't notice. No one's going <laughs> to... They, they didn't notice. No one's going to hear it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I continued to do that for four years. But what was happening in the meantime was that one by one, my fingers were pulling in less. So the the, the third finger, the, the um, which is to say the, the third affected finger, the tertiary finger, was the middle finger. That finger, after about a year, stopped pulling in. And after another year, the pinky stopped pulling in. So now it was only the ring finger that continued to pull in. And by the end of another year, it was much better and almost 100%. And Mm. then one more year, and it was 100%. And it's been, knock on wood, um, perfect ever since. I've always actually been a go-to person for people with injuries of various sorts um, because of this knowledge that I've always had and developed over the years about the anatomy. Um, but this now filled in the one missing piece or seemingly the one missing piece of the puzzle uh, in my larger understanding of things. Uh, in terms of the book, the, again, that fifth chapter is about the ideas that I gleaned from my experience curing myself from focal dystonia, which could be used either for somebody who has focal dystonia and wants to to work on it if they cannot get together with me in person, or it these are ideas that can be used as prevention, uh, injury prevention, because it's my very strong feeling that if one is working with the large muscle technique, which is what this is all about, if one is working with engaging their larger muscles, one cannot injure oneself. Hmm. I think it's impossible. Yeah. Um, the problem there is that so many of us tend to rely on smaller muscles and not enough or at all on larger muscles. And it needs to be a combination of both. Yeah. So um, the, the issue is that most people haven't even thought about large muscles. The, the large muscles I'm talking about are deep in the armpit. Mm-hmm. And you can also think about muscles that go down your back, even down into your lower back. Um, and most guitarists would not even begin to think about those things because they think all the important all things the are happening in the yeah. fingers and the hands. The fingers don't even have any muscles. Yeah. Fingers don't have muscles. The hand has some muscles. The forearm has what we call the small muscles. Uh, the middle arm, which is the arm between the part of the arm between the elbow and your shoulder that has larger muscles but the largest muscles are in the armpit and then the upper and lower back. Yeah. 
So that's what that one chapter is about. And the rest is really a combination of ideas that I have um, learned either from my own intuitive work, which probably accounts for a good 50% of what's what's there in those other chapters, um, along with things that I've learned from Alexander Technique, a little bit from Feldenkrais Technique, a little bit, maybe more, from yoga, which I took a f- some private lessons in, um, and various... Um, bodywork practitioners that I've experienced over the years, including some of the people that I saw when I had focal dystonia. Uh, they may not have cured me, but uh, each person gave me a tiny, at least a tiny bit and sometimes a bigger piece of the puzzle yeah. that uh, I finally used to, to help me figure things out. So I put all that together with a kind of a global understanding of how the body works and how to apply it to guitar as well as other instruments. Yeah. So you're you're now the chair at the Manhattan School of Music yes. for the classical guitar department. Yes, I am currently the chair. I trade off with my colleague Mark Del Priora. Uh, Mark and I were originally co-chairs of the department for some years. And then there was a mandate issued to us that said, now we've got to have a single chair of the department for everyone in the school. So we decided to to trade off like this. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, it's great fun uh, to be chair for a while. And uh, we have a fabulous department at the Manhattan School of Music. And when you I'm say trade off, are, are there time periods where Mark is the chair? And yeah. Then, oh, I yeah. see. He does three years. I do three years. Oh, that's that's really neat. Yeah. It's a nice, oh, it's a nice thing. It's a good setup. We're, yeah, we're good partners in this way. So, you know, we continue to consult with each other yeah. even when the other one is chairman. So, And how long have you been teaching at Manhattan School? At Manhattan? Well, I was asked to teach there in 93 at which time I was still teaching at New England Conservatory. So but the bulk of my students at that point were at New England. Um, and I just had, I think, a, maybe a couple of students at MSM where I basically taught them at home because it was only a couple of students. Mm-hmm. About 10 years later in 03, either 02 or 03, I stopped the commute to NEC in Boston because... What was happening at that point was I was starting to get more concerts and the traveling for concerts on top of the traveling for teaching was yeah. getting to be too much. Because that's so, a bit of a hike, New York to Boston. Yeah. Were you I mean, driving that? Every, no, no. Oh, they, okay. they, they paid for the airfare, which oh, okay. was great. Yeah. It made it easy. But even so... Traveling's tiring, yeah. It's tiring. And sometimes I did it in one day. Some years I did it had two days. And either way, it's tiring. Yeah. Um. And, uh, you know, if you try to add a concert schedule to that, it, it became too much. So I, as much as I love teaching at NEC, I gave that up, uh, transferred all my teaching to MSM, uh, where I've been happily teaching since 03. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, do you, you're a composer as well. Do you uh, work on your compositions with your students? Uh, do they... No. <laughs> I work on their compositions gotcha. sometimes. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, composing is, a, for me, a very private thing. It's it's done in this room that we're sitting in. I don't even apply to, uh, um, you know, for residencies or any one of the colonies, composer or artist colonies, uh, because I'm very happy to sit in the amid the chaos of New York City and... Uh, hole up in my my studio here and when I need fresh air or I need time for ideas I I take a walk outside and I sort of walk in the chaos of New York and just lose my mind as it were and just empty my mind and find ideas that way yeah yeah and um any current uh, commissions or projects on the composing front well there's, there's a number of things I mean recently uh I, I was commissioned for an orchestra piece, uh, which went really well. A very unusual piece, kind of an aleatoric piece. Very, very spare, very quiet concert overture. Um, and uh, the most recent commission was from Steve Cowan, uh, 
Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, who's a former student of mine, a brilliant young player. Steve is just playing as gorgeously as ever right now. And I wrote this piece for him called uh, Empty Mind, Open Heart. And it's a four-movement piece, and he just premiered it in New York just about a month ago. Oh, okay. And you're able to be there? Unfortunately, I had a concert the same night oh, no. in the South. <laughs> oh, it no. It killed me. Did you get a recording me. of it, at least? Well, he made a number of recordings for me before he came, and we kind of did a nice back and forth about yeah. interpretation and various things. And then two days before he played the premiere, he came to me, here in the apartment and played the piece for me and completely blow me away blew me away it was amazing he just oh. he plays the hell out of the piece yeah. it's just incredible so and then i had to take off the next day for my concert so uh i hated to miss it but um that was uh, the most recent piece um and in terms of um Future commissions, I'm working on uh, as assembling a consortium commission for a guitar orchestra piece. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. And uh, I hope to pull that together very soon because I'm hoping to be able to write that this summer. It's practically written in my head already. So it's just a matter of getting enough money together to, to make this thing possible. Yeah, yeah. So um, so that's, that's in the works. And... Um, and I've got uh, a little commission for some songs for voice and piano uh, coming up this summer. And other than that, I've got a lot of pieces coming out in publication. Um, Theodore Presser has been just publishing a lot of my work. Um, the most recent guitar publications have been um, two arrangements, important arrangements, actually three, two big Schubert pieces. One is Die Schöne Müllerin, um, the great song cycle. It's about 70-minute song mm. cycle. It's one of the great pieces ever written. Uh, originally for voice and piano, I've arranged it for baritone and guitar. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, there are a few, couple of arrangements available for voice and guitar, but I felt like they could be improved upon, so... I worked very, very hard on that and uh, am thrilled to make that available now. It's, yeah. it's published. Have um, you performed the arrangement yourself? Oh, or? yes, I have. A wonderful baritone. Michael Kelly and I have performed it a number of times. Um, in fact, we just talked this morning about some more performances coming up. Oh, so, great. Yeah, we're, we're going to do some more. Schubert is just amazing, and it's... Uh... It's so sad he never wrote for the guitar because I know he owned a guitar. It's debated yes. whether he actually played it or not. But well, it, I'm pretty sure he did. He, he had to play a couple I'm pretty notes sure. at least. I think he did. And there, there are good arguments for him probably composing a number of his early songs on the guitar. Yeah. Um, a song like Nacht und Träume um, is a very simple song that is, to me, clearly a guitar song originally. Uh, and there are a number of others that are like that. Maybe the Arpeggione Sonata was composed on well, a guitar. Well, I don't think it was, but the Arpeggione Sonata is the other Schubert arrangement that I made and published oh, okay. recently with Presser. Um, and that, I you know, I didn't arrange the Arpeggione part, I arranged the piano part. For the guitar? For the guitar. Okay. And the Arpeggione part is taken by the cello yeah. or can be taken by any number of other instruments. Um, I'll have to take a look at that because there's only uh, one other arrangement that I know of. The the Alan Krantz. Yeah, it was not very guitaristic on the left hand, to say the least. <laughs> it's a very difficult. Yeah, you know, um, arranging for the guitar is a very very difficult thing, particularly when you're working with piano music, particularly when you're working with somebody even as relatively simple as Schubert. Um, it becomes a, an art of subtraction. Yeah. So that one must learn how to stay as true as possible to the original and then keep subtracting, keep subtracting, keep subtracting until you finally subtract it enough that it becomes playable on the guitar, but it still sounds like Schubert. Hmm. Never thought of it that way. That's... Mm. Uh... 
because it, it is impossible to just totally play all the notes you and can't. phrasings you can't. on the piano. Yeah, you just can't. And the worst so, arrangements are the ones that really sound like, oh, well, it works better in the original instrumentation. Right, exactly. It takes, it takes a good arrangement to actually be moved by the music and and be appealed to the sound of whatever instrument it is being exactly. arranged for. And, yeah. and I have had a number of comments from people whom I respect very much for both the Arpeggione and the uh, Die Schoenermüllerin saying that they actually prefer the guitar to the original. Mm. So then I know I'm on the, I'm on a, the right track. You That's know, great. I'm sure it could be better, and chances are someone one day will do an even better job. But I know I've done well enough to make some yeah. very fine musicians say that. So it is possible. And not to say that it's easy to play, because it's not. Yeah. But I do think they're both very playable arrangements. Yeah. Oh, I'm really excited to take Thank a look you. at those. Thank you. And the other uh, publication that came out recently was West Wind for high voice and guitar. That is set to the poems of Mary Oliver, the great American poet who recently passed away. Mm. I don't know if you've heard of Mary Oliver. You don't know her. Um, but um, she was one of our great poets and very, very popular, like one of the few poets in America who is truly popular. Uh, and, and for good reason, yeah. not for bad. <laughs> She's really a, a great poet. She was a great poet. So I, I, I set six songs to her poems, and, and I'm very proud of that set as well. It's unique that you um, compose quite a bit for other instruments besides the guitar, because it tends to be guitar composers stay in their instrument. That's right. And it's not uh, me. Yeah. No, I've always been that way. So even when you're composing, for the guitar, do you tend to stay away from the instrument? And Yes, I do. Um, although, in fact, this last piece that I wrote for Steve Cowan, I use the guitar more than I normally do, strangely enough. Uh, but I often will compose away from the guitar. Sometimes I compose at the piano, mm -hmm. um, which sounds really strange, but whether I compose at the piano or just at my desk, uh, I'm envisioning what I'm writing for the, both hands of the guitar. Yeah. And that process obviously has to be fairly quick in order to do that. And then, I'll, of course, I will always test it on the guitar and see, yeah. does this work or am I dreaming completely? Yeah, you know? yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I love to write for other instruments and I think I'd get really bored just writing for the guitar. Yeah. So it's since the beginning of my composing career, I've always written for guitar and other instruments. Yeah. And that's how I kind of branched out to writing for other instruments. I might write for, you know, guitar and violin, and I would write for guitar and flute, and then work with those instrumentalists and learn a lot in the process about their instrument. Yeah. And that would give me a lot of understanding for their instrument and then branch out some more and branch out some more. And then eventually you get good at it that you don't have to play with every instrument to write for it. But in the beginning, you kind of do, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how much you can learn in a chamber setting, working with other instrumentalists. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, yes, it... it you can learn from other guitarists, but there, there's just a whole new sense of musicality and you learn about their techniques and everything, but well, especially yeah. working with singers, something oh, with course. their phrasing, it's of just eye-opening the first yeah. time. Singers for phrasing, for, for lyrical quality, for even for, for coloring a phrase and all kinds of things, or just learning about the breath, which we don't have to use directly as guitarists, but as anybody who reads my book will find out, that breathing is connected to playing, and it's important to know how to breathe and and when to breathe, or or how to breathe in a in a natural way. And so you learn that kind of thing from a singer or a wind player, yeah. and uh, and from a bowed string player, you learn about continuity of line, and you learn about vibrato, and so many so many great things. Every every instrument you work with. If you if you're listening, you really learn something new every time. Yeah, I think vibrato and breathing might be two of some of the most neglected aspects of music for <laughs> guitarists. Yeah. So I I rarely hear about ta people talk about vibrato, um, and I've seen so many guitarists 
with their breathing either it's out of time with the musicality and it just seems so loud and forced or it seems like they're almost holding their breath trying to not make yeah. any sound with it. it it is uh i think something that's very easy to underestimate yes as a guitarist yes i agree i agree and lots can be said about the vibrato yeah um lots yeah absolutely <laughs> again it's in the book yes <laughs> And is the book available on Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on OUP.com, which is the Oxford website. And you can get it from all of the guitar retailers that sell your favorite guitar accessories yeah. and strings and music. You know, Fantastic. So at the time of this recording, uh, it's before the next leg at the tour, but you're currently playing duo recitals with Eduardo Fernandez. That's, That's got to right. be a fun, fun collaboration. We are having a lot of fun with it. Um, Eduardo and I have known each other for a number of years. Um, not very well, but um, I certainly have admired him immensely. He's one of my favorite guitarists in the world. And uh, the last time that Eduardo came to give a masterclass at Manhattan School of Music, um, actually the time before last, um, I was so struck by the fact that almost everything he said was not only the, what I would have said, but also the way I would have said it. <laughs> and I was so struck by it. I went out to dinner with him afterwards. I said, this is amazing that we think so similarly. I said, you know, sometime we should try to play duos together. And he said, without a, a, a losing a beat, he said, so what repertoire would you play? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it just went very easily yeah. from there. And we, we, we did, right then and there, build a repertoire for a possible program. And then, you know, I shopped it around and we came up with uh, a number of places to play this year. And scarily enough, our very first concert on this tour was the 92nd Street Y in New York City, which uh, probably is the most important uh, concert of the, of the whole tour. Yeah. And uh, we just did a little house concert uh, a couple nights before, and, but we were ready we to jumped, go. Jumped right into we it. We just jumped into the fire. Uh, it was great. We really had a lot of fun with this. And we, then we went to Seattle. Uh, that was the first leg of the tour. And now uh, in April, we're going to go to uh, Portland, Oregon and uh, L.A., California and back to uh, the East Coast on Long Island at the Long Island Guitar Festival. So um, we're really having a ball. We're playing, yeah. a, playing a program of mostly duos. Uh, there's a couple of 19th century pieces, the Soar Souvenirs of Russia. Um, there's the Loyer. Sonata Opus 31, number three, I think, in E minor. It's the best known of, uh, of the sonatas by that not-so-well-known composer, Antoine de Loyer. Um, very, very fine classical-era composer. Really fine. It's a yeah. beautiful piece. And we're playing the Steve Reich, uh, Nagoya Marimbas, and David oh, Tannenbaum's okay. arrangement. And, um, and then we're playing a piece by each of, our, each of us, uh, my piece called Mirage, um, written about 30 years ago, and a piece by Eduardo called Astor Meets Hator, which is exactly what you would expect. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a mashup of the two composers. Yeah. It even has a hint of Wagner in it. It's really? really it's really fun. I, really. Didn't, I didn't realize Eduardo was a composer as well. A lot of people don't know that. He's a very good composer, huh. really. And again, somebody who writes for other instruments. Yeah. A uh, serious composer. He's a serious guy and wonderful musician. And we uh, then also play solo spots on, on each half. Uh, Eduardo plays the Bach Chacon in the first half, and I play the last four Villalobos etudes in the second half. Oh, very nice. So it's a really so lovely program. Uh, 9 to 12. Or 9 yeah. what, <laughs> As you can tell, I'm a, I'm a music student, not a math student. Wow. What I love about the Villalobos etudes is they're, yes, they're studies, but the musicality in them are just stunning. Yeah, they're great pieces. Especially, I love 10. Is that 
tense with the the crazy left hand. Yes, uh, exactly. All, with, the, all the, the with, slurs with the slurs and yeah. the kind of cello like melody and and yeah. and uh, and eleven is so lyrical as well. They're they're just gems. They're amazing pieces, and I have always felt that the the twelve etudes are really best appreciated as a set. Yeah, as a whole set. So um, at many different times in my career, including right now. Uh, I'm playing the etudes as a set, and I've always felt that it's such a powerful journey. Yeah, you know, from the beginning of those, the like the first four etudes are kind of the least mature in a way. They're amazing pieces, but they're it goes from those less mature pieces, and it gets more and more mature as it goes along until you get to the last ones that you're talking about, ten, eleven, twelve, and nine as well. They're really quite profound yeah i think yeah and it's so it's a real journey and and they each have that. such a character from the oh, really kind of comical and silly seventh to <laughs> just immensely passionate and angry sounding 12th and yeah oh yeah. i love them yeah i, I really got to play them all myself you, you, really you know I, i've got some gaps definitely i mean i've done <laughs> a couple of them but uh and I like the fact that you think of number seven as comical. That I I agree with you. I think it it's can almost, be seen that way. It's almost like I feel like it's kind of a joke. He's just trying to play an E major scale the whole time, but always misses it by one note, That's going right. to the F natural at That's the bottom right. of the scale. And then da da dum da dum b. Anyway, oh, it's so funny. So right. I I I find like a lot of times. Uh, some classical musicians don't realize some of this music, even if it's really hard and may seem serious on paper, is such funny sounding yeah. and, and comical yeah. timbre. Yeah, so I, I mean, Etude 7, or I remember I saw Paulo Dett play the E major uh, violin partita on yes. lute. Yes. And he was talking about how this was a total comical piece of Bach. And it, the uh. way he played it was just so jolly and eye-opening and I light that. and, See, and I never a, thought of that yeah before. and neither did I I always thought of it as such a you know probably because I have a bit of PTSD from the prelude of that piece when I tried playing that at <laughs> far too young of an age <laughs> or at least to my ability it's at that very, time very hard piece you know I I find that I, I've mentioned it before I find that harder than the Chaconne I mean yes. it's uh even though the Chaconne is kind of more of a mature and long marathon type of piece that that prelude, it just keeps going and going. There's well, I think you're right. I think technically the the the, the fourth the uh, fourth I'll call it the fourth lute suite prelude. I know I'm not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll let it slide for a guitar podcast. <laughs> is uh, good job, is, Hillary Hahn, or somebody's not in the room. Like exactly. That. <laughs> um, but uh, that that piece is technically much more complex. But uh, of course, musically, I think the Chaconne is. Kind of endless. It's a journey for yeah. sure. Thank you, David, for being on the show. Please join me in two weeks for a conversation with tone based artist Gohar Vardanyan. I'll leave things today with the third movement from the Schubert arrangement of the Arpeggioni Sonata that David spoke of earlier. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Base Classical Guitar Podcast.